Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. G'day and welcome to the Fred Paul Show on ADH-TV. Before I start, a quick plug for my colleague Dave Pellow's Church and State Conference in Adelaide this Friday and Saturday, featuring the most popular politician in the country, Jacinta Price, Senator Alex Antich, Sarah Game and many more, many more. It should be an excellent conference. To book your seat, go to churchandstate.com.au. That's churchandstate.com.au if you are in Adelaide this Friday and Saturday. Well, just when you thought Nazism could not get any worse, along comes Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to tell you that it can. Here he is on the weekend apologising for having a few days earlier joined in with the entire Canadian House of Commons in applauding a Ukrainian World War II veteran who embarrassingly was later revealed to be a member of the Nazi Waffen SS. In a few moments, I will address the House in front of all Canadians, in front of Jewish people here and around the world, and Ukrainians, to offer Parliament's unreserved apologies for what happened on Friday. The Speaker was solely responsible for the invitation and recognition of this man, and has wholly accepted that responsibility and stepped down. This was a mistake that has deeply embarrassed Parliament and Canada. All of us who were in this House on Friday regret deeply having stood and clapped, even though we did so unaware of the context. It was a horrendous violation of the memory of the millions of people who died in the Holocaust, and it was deeply, deeply painful for Jewish people. It also hurt Polish people, Roma people, 2SLGBTQI plus people, disabled people, racialized people, and the many millions who were targeted by the Nazi genocide. Yeah, that's right. Not only did the Nazis try to exterminate Jews and gypsies, but also to spirit people. For those of you who don't follow the inanities of social media and the banality of university humanities courses, the 2S in 2SLGBTQI refers to people who believe they have two spirits 
And I don't mean people who are as partial to whiskey as they are to vodka. I mean people who don't know if they're Arthur or Martha. The persecution of these people these days is bad enough, but it was worse in Germany in the 1940s when Nazi brown shirts were going door to door looking for Jews and men wearing dresses. No wonder Trudeau wants the persecution of these people to finally stop. But you have to wonder about how emphatic Trudeau was about this apology and why. That video I showed you was the apology that preceded the actual formal apology in Parliament. Why does he need to be so emphatic? I mean, it's not as if his wokeness was ever in doubt. Here he is in 2016, less than a year after becoming Prime Minister, marching for gay rights in Canada. Here he is the next year, 2017, tearfully apologising for all the bad things previous Canadian governments had done to gay people. Here he is the next year in 2018, wokishly donning clothes he picked up at a Bollywood garage sale during a visit to India to prove that he's not some colonial white oppressor on a mission to revive the glory days of the Raj. And just to prove he's also hip to the oppression of women, here he is with his son attending the Barbie movie just a couple of months ago. His woke credentials are well beyond doubt. So why the over-the-top correction for the Nazi faux pas, Justin? You could wonder the same thing about the recently departed Victorian Premier Dan Andrews. Not since Robert Menzies declared in 1939 that it was his melancholy duty to announce Australia had automatically followed Great Britain into the war against Germany has Australia had a political leader as resolutely anti-Nazi as Andrews. In November last year, a week before the Federal Victorian election, he tweeted, I want to be very clear here, Nazis, racists and bigots have no place in politics. They have no place in our parliament and they have no place in our state. And in March, after a bunch of Nazis crashed a Let Women Speak rally on the steps of Parliament House, he tweeted, I wish it didn't have to be said, but it clearly does. Nazis aren't welcome. Not on Parliament steps, not anywhere. Yeah, yeah, we get it, Dan. If it weren't for you, the rest of us would be attending the Australian equivalent of the Nuremberg rallies and calling for the government to round up our political opponents, censor their voices and imprison them when they... Hang on a sec. Isn't that what Dan Andrews did for the better part of two years under the cover of a fake pandemic? Didn't Trudeau imprison protesting truckers and cancel their bank accounts? Didn't both of them declare states of emergency in order to circumvent democratic processes and impose dictatorial rule? Aren't both of them afraid to appear in public without being surrounded by armed security? In other words, who are the real Nazis here? Ordinary working people like us? Or power-mad tyrants like Andrews and Trudeau? This is not an idle question, the way things are going. Pretty soon we won't even be able to ask questions like that without being hauled before some kind of tribunal for committing wrong speak. We've already, we've already seen it happen during COVID. 
don't think they are planning, don't, don't think they are not planning to do it again. But as a rule of thumb from now on, the more someone publicly opposes Nazism, the more likely they are to be one. Well, now let's talk to someone who is no stranger to the oppressive and censorious nature of modern politics. Catherine Deves stood for the federal seat of Warringah in the 2022 election. It was once a safe liberal seat held by Tony Abbott for 25 years, but fell to the teal Zaghi Ste Zali Stegel in 2019. During last year's campaign, Deves made a comment that she thought the surgical transgendering of kids was akin to mutilation and sterilization, which sparked a vicious vitriolic backlash from the transgender lobby and its allies in the mainstream media. Death threats were received and the whole experience caused Deves considerable anguish. But although she lost the election for Warringah, she has not resiled from her campaign to protect the vulnerable from the transgender lobby. She's a leading campaigner against men assuming the right to occupy women's spaces and against men playing in women's sport. She's also eminently qualified to talk about the censorship issue of the day, which is what happened to British TV commentator Lawrence Fox last week. For those who didn't get the whole story, Fox was a regular presenter on GB News in the UK, while appearing on another show on GB News hosted by Dan Wooten last week. He was asked his opinion about Ava Evans, who was known for being a fairly strident feminist and had previously expressed a lack of sympathy for the alarming rate of male suicide in the UK. Fox replied by saying that no self-respecting man would want to, quote unquote, shag Evans. He later published a video apologising for the demeaning language but didn't fully retract his criticism of her. The fallout has been as extraordinary as the sanctimony of some other commentators has been nauseating. While a war grinds on in, the in Ukraine, China prepares to take Taiwan, a doddery old fool occupies the White House, and the World Health Organization prepares to press the big red button called Global Pandemic and Vaccine Rollout Mark II, the media in Britain and elsewhere were preoccupied with a heated debate about whether or not it was rude for Lawrence Fox to say he did not want to have sex with Ava Evans. Fox has since been suspended by GB News, as have Dan Wooten and Calvin Robinson, who made the mistake of publicly supporting Fox. I don't want to be seen as contributing to the meta commentary, but I am interested in the implications this has for censorship around the world, including here in Australia, which is where Catherine Deves comes in. Catherine, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on today, Fred. Catherine, first, before we get into the censorship part, how do you feel about what, what Fox said about Ava Evans? Well, the problem with these sorts of situations is that Fox was trying to highlight that Ava Evans diverted a conversation about male suicide, which is an epidemic in the UK. It's a leading cause of death in men under 55. And she tried to start talking about the, uh, I believe it, 
went on to the gender pay gap uh, and women's mental health, etc. And Lawrence Fox was upset, and I believe uh, rightly so. I mean, the first time Ava crossed my radar was when she tried to go head-to-head -head with um, Douglas Murray on Piers Morgan and, of course, came off looking like a bit of an idiot because she criticised his book and had appeared not to uh, have read it. So I think Lawrence Fox was justified in criticising her ideas, but I think we can all agree that, you know, when he's commenting on her shag ability, it actually devalued the point he was trying to make. And I know he's apologised for that, but I can understand why he stood by the sentiment. Yeah, well said. Um, well, as you said, he, he's admitted it was in poor taste. In previous times, Catherine, that would have been the end of it. I mean, why can't... If he's admitted it's in poor taste, we all agree or disagree on whether Ava, Ava Evans' uh, opinions are valid, can we just move on? <laughs> you know, why can't it just be the end of it? Why does someone have to lose their job over this? Well, isn't it interesting that it's GB News that have cancelled Fox and Wharton? I mean, they've positioned their se themselves as the platform for free speech in Great Britain and they've been highly successful. And yet here they are and they've fallen at the first hurdle uh, and cancelled these men who, who have apologised. And, of course, Ava has gone off. She's uh, gained several thousand new followers. She's gone off to the BBC and was moaning about how she was a, a vehicle for content. Um, so she's benefited. And these men have uh, effectively, you know, blown up their careers. And from what I can see about the comments that she makes, she just appears to me to be a third wave liberal feminist who sees everything through the prism of either being a the oppressed or the oppressor. So we've lost these two commentators who add a lot of value to the discourse. And then here we've got Ava, who just seems to have made a career out of uh, criticising men and complaining about the lot of women without actually adding a whole lot of substance. Well, yeah, well, I mean, to that point about the criticism she has of men, there are worse things said every day on broadcasters and especially on social media. Um, but generally, the ones that the people that get away with it are from the left talking about conservatives. Uh, are we being paranoid or is there a double standard here? I think you're right there, Fred. I think there is a, a bit of a double standard here at play. And look, I, I don't disagree that Wooden and Fox should have been reprimanded. Uh, they should have apologised. Maybe they should have stood down and have a holiday for a couple of weeks, let it blow over. But I think actually firing them, well, GB News is showing that, you know, the point of difference that they've tried to establish, they've just lost all that social capital by playing the game of the leftist progressives who are quite willing to cancel anybody for the slightest change. Yeah, well, as you said, they've, but they, they, they suspended those three presenters. There's another factor here, Catherine, because Ofcom immediately announced it was going to look into this instance. Uh, Ofcom, of course, is the British broadcasting regulator. Now, it's fair to say that GB News is afraid of receiving a negative judgment from Ofcom because Ofcom has a lot of power. Now, the same might apply here soon, Catherine, because the federal government is planning to introduce a bill this year which will empower the Australian Communications and Media Authority, the Australian equivalent of Ofcom, to determine what is mis- and disinformation on shows like this one, as well as anything published by Australians online. Now, are governments of liberal democracies 
becoming too, I'm reluctant to use this word, Catherine, but I have to. Are governments of liberal democracies becoming too Nazi these days? Well, they're certainly becoming way too authoritarian. Uh, we know that the cornerstone of democracy is freedom of speech. And with ACMA, you know, being invested with all this power to determine, you know, what is truth, um, I mean, it's like we're stepping into 1984 and I don't think it should be up to the government. This seems to me like gross state overreach. It should be up to the people. People should be free to say whatever they like, in my view, provided they're not directly inciting violence. I will definitely draw the line there. Um, you know, not really a fan of profanity either. I think that would devalue your argument. But I think that we should be able to say what we like because who are the people, who are the arbiters behind the scenes saying what we can and cannot say. I think we're getting into very, very dangerous territory when we allow a government organisation with faceless bureaucrats to determine what is the truth and what is not. The underlying sentiment of all this, Catherine, is that the government can't trust the people to think for themselves. That's essentially what they're saying, isn't it? It seems to be. I mean, there's a whole lot of arguments going on, a whole lot of issues uh, where the government just keeps force feeding us uh, what their narrative is. And if people stand up and disagree, I mean, they're facing loss of livelihood, uh, particularly in the issue for which I became known. Uh, people are being dragged through quasi-judicial processes. They're being charged with, um, with crimes. They're being dragged off to jail. I mean, th this is really alarming, it's authoritarianism, it's totalitarianism, and I certainly did not expect to see it here in Australia in the 21st century. Yeah, well, I'm glad you're here to talk about it because there's, <laughs> there's a shortage of people who will stand up against this stuff because it is actually frightening and I think uh, the majority of Australians will one day feel the wrath of all this censorship. Now, let's talk about another great censorship victim uh, of this month, and that is uh, also from Britain, Russell Brand. Brand's behaviour 20 years ago, well, that made Lawrence Fox's offhand comment look like a sermon from the Archbishop of Canterbury. Russell Brand was notoriously libidinous and probably predatory back in the, time, back in the day. But all this was tolerated at the time, of course, because he was also as left-wing as they come. Now, he's since sobered up, stopped taking drugs, stopped drinking, got married, had kids, and more importantly, become an outspoken critic of the global elites who want to shut us all down into 15-minute cities, make us eat bugs and make us freeze in the dark. Now, the media and even the police are showing a lot of interest in what he got up to all those years ago after the, uh, the Sunday Times and Channel 4 published an expose about some of his behaviour from 20 years ago. Catherine, the key question here, is Brand the victim of a coordinated hit job by the elites or is he getting his comeuppance? I think we can all agree that uh, back in the day, uh, Brand, he was a sleazebag. I wouldn't have wanted to be in the same room as him. Uh, however, what we're seeing now is the media being weaponised for vigilantism. And if there is merit to the complaints of the women who are accusing him, 
then brands should be afforded due process. When we see people being taken down by the media, uh, they're stripped of their ability to earn a living, I mean, we have to understand that the justice system is the bulwark between the individual and gross state overreach. So what concerns me is if they come for brand, who's the next person that they're going to come for? And I understand that people have their frustrations with the judicial system. Uh, the wheels of justice do turn slowly. People don't always necessarily get the outcomes that they want. But this is a system that's, you know, it's over a thousand years old. It originated in the King's Peace. And there are things like administration of justice, presumption of innocence, uh, being able to uh, face your accusers. And when we allow the media to step in and fulfil the role of, uh, you know, taking people down, then people do not have access to the, the system of justice. And I think that that uh, is quite alarming. And I think that if there is merit to these complaints, we should allow the police to do the investigating uh, and Russell Brand should be afforded due process. Yeah, I, most men dismiss these dismiss twenty year old allegations. Um, you know, these are twenty year old allegations. Saying most men think that if it was a crime at the time, why wasn't it reported back then? Now, Catherine, can you tell me is there a legitimate is there a legitimate reason why women would wait that long before reporting a sex crime? Look, I mean, things were different, you know, t 20 years ago. And for women um, who have been maybe sexually assaulted, sexually harassed, yes, th there is a lot of shame attached to that. There can be trauma that takes uh, years and years to process. But I think there is a much bigger question here, and this is to do with the sexual revolution. I am not entirely sure that society has really started grappling with the implications of that. So obviously with the introduction of the pill, we were all of a sudden able to have sex without consequences. Uh, so what we have now is we have women who've, who've grown up in generations where we've been sort of taught to, you know, have sex like like men, without intimacy, without accountability, uh, to sort of, you know, the, the Tinder lifestyle where you're just hooking up and you never, you don't even know people's last names. And having sex like that doesn't work well for women. Um, I think, and, and not ev necessarily every single man, but I think by devaluing the Sex Act, removing accountability, removing intimacy, removing even respect a lot of the time, that is why we're seeing these instances of women who, at the time, there might have been drugs involved or alcohol, you know, they've woken up in the cold light of day, they feel used and abused, and maybe, you know, rightly so, um, but then to turn around and accuse someone uh, of rape, you know, I mean, that's, that's a very serious uh, accusation and someone can be deprived of liberty. So I think in terms of, you know, what's happened to the relationship between men and women and how a man might approach a sexual encounter as opposed to how a woman might and how she might feel later or how she might feel even years later about it is, is very different. And I think society's got a bit of a reckoning coming as we try to deal with the fallout from the sexual revolution. That's very well said. Um, one of the phrases that keeps coming up, and it's a relatively new phrase, is this thing about predatory behaviour. I mean, men have always been predatory. I mean, men have always... That, that's just another word for chasing women. Uh, but in a, in a time of, of excessive uh, libertarianism, 
it goes, it, it morphs from, you know, politely or, or romantically pursuing women to just, you know, getting them drunk and having a one-night stand. But, you know, this idea of predatory behaviour has suddenly, without much debate, become akin to criminal behaviour, but it's not. Well, look, I think the boundaries that existed before the sexual revolution are, are no longer there. And, you know, women, we had a lot of power over men. If a man wanted to have sexual relations, he would have to prove himself. He would have to court us. He would have to prove that he could support you and any children that you may have. He would have to win over your father. And now those sort of checks and balances and, and safeguards, you know, no longer exist. And look, I am not going to deny that there are a small percentage of men who are highly predatory um, and you know do viciously attack women I think we can we can all agree with that um, but I think in terms of like this sort of rewriting of the rules it doesn't do women any favors and I think also men are getting confused and then you throw porn into the mix uh, where men are becoming you know somewhat addled as to what con consent is uh, what women actually want from a man particularly with um, younger generations who are being exposed to porn at younger and younger ages and they actually think that you know sex acts that are really quite degrading and upsetting for girls are normal because that is what they've been exposed to I mean we have a real toxic stew uh, that, that's occurring uh, with intimacy between men and women and I think you know in particular with the porn this is a massive public health act and I condemn Albanese for not uh, jumping on that opportunity to introduce age verification to protect our children. Um, so I think that we're probably going to be seeing more and more examples of um, people like Russell Brand where boundaries have been overstepped um, in the past and, you know, they're now going to pay the, pay the price for it. Well, that's a good point. I think the, the victims of the sexual revolution and the feminist movement to now have mostly been women. I mean, they're the ones who've lost the most. They've lost the security of a, uh, of a solid marriage. They've lost the joy of being mothers. You know, they're now, most of them are in careers that they don't like. Uh, and men have got what they wanted. Um, but, <laughs> but, there's always a but, until now. Because now, women are fighting back and accusing men of poor behaviour juries are sympathising and men are getting knocked up, locked up, not knocked up, <laughs> bit of a Freudian slip, men are getting locked up for, you know, what was essentially uh, um, uh, legal behaviour and consensual. Now, I have, a th I have a theory, Catherine, that the elites are hoping to get brand charged and in the dock. What do you think? I would agree with you on that, Fred. I mean, he has been saying things that are very much against the zeitgeist, and obviously he's not someone who I suspect can be easily controlled. But if he's going to be threatened uh, with incarceration and he's not going to be able to pro provide for his wife and children, I mean, people behave themselves uh, when their loss of livelihood, um, when loss of livelihood uh, is, is threatened. Yeah, and if he does find himself in the dock, in fa facing a jury, do you think there's any chance of a fair trial? 
once he's had trial by media, I would say that would be uh, very, very difficult. And it's going to be, yeah, you're right, a complete circus. But I do want to add one thing, Fred, um, with respect to uh, the sexual revolution. I don't think it's just women and children. It brings us full circle to the issue that Lawrence Fox was so upset about, and that's male suicide. I think that men as well do lose out when they don't have a strong family unit. Um, loneliness, uh, substance abuse, and I think a lot of that comes from the, the breakdown in the family unit. Very well said, Catherine. Here's me sympathising with women and you're sympathising with men. Isn't that the way it should be? Catherine Deves, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Fred. Great to be here. That's women's rights campaigner Catherine Deves. Introducing the co-host of Parting Shots, the weekly news podcast from ADH. Well, obviously, it's a very exciting opportunity for Fred. He's been on my back for years to do this with him, so in the end, I just said yes. Yeah, Nick told me about this idea a couple of weeks ago, and I thought, couldn't I do one with Alan Jones instead? You couldn't have two more very different guys. Fred's just the knockabout surfy, catches a wave, rides with it. I'm more, bring a bit more intellectual depth to it, just get below the surface of each issue. Oh, yeah, Nick is so annoying. Just because he's got a weekly column in The Australian, he thinks he knows everything. I worry about the amount of time that Fred spends out in the surf, you know, he's inclined to get a little bit of water on the brain. Oh, 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 hang on. It says on this surf forecast app that the swell's picking up this afternoon. Can we finish this tomorrow? Well, obviously, Fred, Fred asked me to host it. He's, you know, he's a great Aussie larrikin, but I, I guess he lacks the, the gravitas that you bring to it as a former newspaper editor. Of course, I only agreed to do the podcast because the boss said I could be the host. I mean, I respect Nick and everything, but you can't have a pommy host of an Australian news podcast, can you? Search Spotify for Parting Shots, the podcast by Fred Paul and Nick Cater. Are you looking for the best books to buy? but can't be bothered searching for them in increasingly woke bookshops? Visit the ADH website, click on the store, and check out the latest and some collectible old books by such authors as Brendan O'Neill, Ian Plymer, Jared Henderson, Ian Hancock, and myself, David Flint. These are some of the sharpest writers applying common sense to the great debates of our time, from the gender wars, the attack on religion, and the new racism of the Aboriginal lobby. All the information you need to get through these crazy times at store.adh.tv. Hello world, it's Daisy Cousins here, and I'm pleased to inform you that I am now appearing on ADH TV every week, twice a week, for your viewing pleasure. So make sure you tune in to my two shows where I am interviewing some of the most interesting people on the planet as well as covering all the latest in news and current events. Make sure you tune in. I can't wait to see you there.
Welcome back. Now, it might sound counterintuitive, but the last thing Australia needs right now is full employment. Property developer Tim Gurner tried to explain this at a conference hosted by the Australian Financial Review a couple of weeks ago. I think the problem that we've had is that we've, you know, we, we have people decided they didn't really want to work so much anymore through COVID and that has had a massive issue on productivity. You know, tradies have definitely pulled back on productivity. You know, they, they have been paid, paid a lot to do not too much in the last few years and we need to see that change. We need to see unemployment rise. Unemployment has to jump 40, 50% in my view. We need to see pain in the economy. We need to remind people that they work for the employer, not the other way around. I mean, there is a, there's been a systematic change where employees feel the employer is extremely lucky to have them um, as opposed to the other way around. So it's a dynamic that has to change. We've got to kill that attitude and that has to come through hurting the economy. Well, this elicited outrage around the world. New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez posted a tweet to her 13 million followers referring to Tim Gurner and pointing out that corporate bosses were highly paid, just like she is. Anyway, Australian writer Van Badham said Gurner was a reminder of the, quote, economic sadism of our time. Gurner broke the golden rule of the culture wars, and that is never to apologise. The next day, he issued a statement saying the comments were wrong and insensitive. It marked another backward step in an important debate. There can hardly be a single boss or employer who hasn't noticed that young Australians rarely make ideal employees these days. This is, I hasten to add, not all their fault. Ever since humans crawled from, uh, from across, stopped wandering across the African savannah and started growing crops and raising herds instead, the primary focus of their labours has been to secure a safe place to live and hopefully raise a family. Gen X was probably the last Australian generation to whom this was a birthright. So you can forgive young Australians for not being particularly ambitious about climbing the ladder at work or even working extra hours to get ahead. If a house deposit is unattainable, no matter how hard you work, what's the point? Add to that the education they've endured, which tells them that the planet is about to be fried by the sun monster and the country of their birth is guilty of colonial genocide anyway, and it is not surprising that they are not imbued with either enthusiasm or a work ethic, let alone resilience. I hasten also to add that I don't speak for all young people. There are many young Australians who are as tough as nails, but the cult culture into which this generation is born is not conducive to overcoming life's inevitable challenges, which is proved by the pile-on Tim Gurner endured when he simply tried to explain a problem that is undeniable. But you won't find any acknowledgement of this in the federal government's new white paper on employment, which was released on Monday. The government's stated ambition is for, quote, 
Everyone who wants a job to be able to find one without searching for too long and a new and broader objective of sustained and inclusive full employment is at the heart of our agenda. Well, does that overlook what Tim Gurner was pointing out? That if there is full employment, workers won't feel the need to work hard because should things get too difficult, they can just quit and find work elsewhere. Well, to answer that, let's bring in tech entrepreneur Stephen Baxter, who founded the River City Labs Working Hub in Brisbane in 2012 and has been behind startups and entrepreneurs ever since. He's also been a star of Channel 10's Shark Tank since 2014. Steve, welcome to the show. G'day, Fred. Thanks for having me. Steve, is full <laughs> employment a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I suppose it depends what full employment is. I mean, it's obviously quite low single-digit percentages. I doubt it's ever going to be zero. Um, look, I, I think that um, I'm a huge believer in the dignity of work and everyone deserves a job. Um, I'm probably the only non-left-leaning member of my entire family, and my, my mother imprinted that on me, and I, I do believe that. Um, that being said, I have a lot of um, I have a lot of sympathy for for what Tim Gurner said. I have a lot of sympathy for it. Um, I actually thought he put it quite well, but obviously, you know, um, uh, he got latched onto. Um, wouldn't, wouldn't it be great to be an AOC's um, hit list? That'd be that'd be a great way to get some notoriety. But um, so well, hopefully, look, hopefully I, I, you I do, and I, I will wind up on it by the end of the week. But carry on. Um, We'll give it a go. We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll give it our best. Um, look, no, I, and I do. And I've often, I've often lamented with some of those same thoughts myself. Um, now that being said, you know I employ some um, some amazing people. Maybe, you know we've got about young. We have an amazing young man in our business here now. Jake is just he, he started in the army, did nine years in the army. So that that doesn't tend to reward people slacking off in, in any in any form. But uh, you do come across some absolute stellar examples, and, and then there's absolute, and there's the absolute lazy buggers that you find as well. But that's in every sector at the same time. So how how more deep this is, um, I'm not too sure. I, I don't wish unemployment on anybody, but I do very much sympathise with what Tim Gurner said. Yeah, it's a it's a bit of a double edged sword. I mean, if there is a shortage, is if there is some sort of competition or tension to get a job, then some people will be left out of work. And there will be people unemployed. I mean, like you say, you don't wish that on people. But when you say you believe in the dignity of work, this isn't just turning up for work and leaning against a shovel. The dignity of work comes from overcoming challenges and working hard and, you know, setting yourself goals and so on, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah, lots of things. I mean, it, 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 I don't disagree with any of that. But, I mean, there's, there's always, you know, there's always context and there's always sort of this strata to an argument, I, I suppose, Fred. So, um uh, you know, for me as as an employer, I've been I I, I have a different approach to how uh, how a fulfilling workplace. I, I like I like to think that when when the person comes into work at nine or eight or whatever time they start and knock off at five, at sort of twenty minutes before they finish the, for, for the day, they go, oh, oh my god, it's it's gone so fast. Like we've we've kept them engaged with with fruitful labour that's not busy work that they can actually get in there. They they know what they have to do in order to meet their their expectations to please the boss, call it what you want, but to actually. Uh, to, to you know, to, to get across that they've actually uh, been productive in their day, so that they know what they have to do. So, um, uh, so I don't disagree. But I think there's, there's, there are there are definitely sort of you know context, and there's 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 there's, there's, there's lots of limits to what, what what we're talking about. Yeah, well, I mean, when you say you know they knock off at five, I, as uh, as someone who has observed younger Australians for you know the past few years, I've got to say that. The idea that uh, come five o'clock, it's immediately switched to uh, knockoff time. 
I find that annoying, you know, like, I mean, work should be stimulating to the point where you don't mind staying around a bit longer, you know, after your, your, your official oh, oh, no, shift look, is ended. Was, no, look, and it was, it was very much just a, you know, a nine to five, okay, assuming someone works from nine to five. And I, I don't think you should be relying on staff to work a whole bunch of extra unpaid hours. No, that's um, right, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in financial services where people tend to get rewarded on, on um, our performance and portfolios. So there's no whilst we, have, whilst we do have a, a contract of working week, contract of working hours because that, that everyone needs to know what the minimum has to be. So it was more like, you know, I've, um, once upon a time, you know, my first businesses, I would have worked. Oh god, I would have worked 80, 90 hours a week. Um, but I had no kids. Now I have kids, and I want to go home. So I, I do, I do understand the desire to get home. And I also think there has to be a break between work and home. That's actually very important. Uh, otherwise, after a while. You will burn that person out, and that's that's not a really good relationship to be an uh, employer to employee. Um, yeah, a so, lot of a lot of I, clever I a lot of clever employers these days make their offices look like homes, don't they? Yeah, look at you know, I, and I've got a um, yeah that they do, and they, they they pat it out with a lot of with a lot of um, a lot of lollies and fruit and you know bean bags and other bits and pieces. I worked at Google for a year in 0809. Uh, and, and honestly, if you want to see pampered employees, holy hell, pampered employee. So, um, but, you know, that, that company had more money than God. Uh, it can do what it wants to do. So when you're really rich, you can, you can, you can do dumb things. Um, so that the, rest of, the rest of the economy is not Google. Yeah. That's probably the yeah. issue. So there, there, there's a lot of very successful companies. And it's great. And we have some in Australia, the Canvas, Atlassians, et cetera. And, and they, 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 they set up a, a nice beacon of a standard. But you know, maybe it's nice to be an aspiration to work towards. But but at times, you just have to be productive. You know, at the end of the day, the business has to make money. Um, the shareholders have to get a return, so they reinvest in the business and grow the business. So um, there needs to be a more mature, well-rounded approach. I think from from everyone, from employees through to management, that's for sure. Yeah, well, young young Australians these days are encouraged to seek employment in fields that match their values. This has been going on for probably a couple of decades now. I mean, you said a minute ago, you know, you've got to turn up to work knowing that the company has to make money. Well, that's not the mindset of young people these days, is it? No, no, she did a tweet today on this dreadful bloody race-based referendum we're having, excuse me, and, and about, it was just about, you know, in, Indigenous disadvantage and other bits and pieces and the educate and educate. It was actually a pretty good threat, to be honest. Um, it wasn't, wasn't too, wasn't too pissimony and, and, and abusive. Um, and it was just, it, it essentially, it's like, you know, the young people should be getting, uh, I think made the point, the young people should be getting um, an education that's desirable to their employer, not just one they want. Because let's face it, we, we all want to do some pretty crazy stuff, right? But if no one wants to pay to do it, then and it's a hobby, all right? So, um, but I just want to make the point. So, I, I think there's there's a, there's a wider issue here, and, and, and we keep talking about employees, and I, I don't think that's 100% materially fair. Um, we haven't, as a society, experienced a recession for what for almost three decades now, Fred. Yep. Um, I, I definitely remember. I, I remember 16, 17% interest rates, but I was saving at the time, so I was pretty happy with that, to be honest. So, but for those who actually had a housing loan at the time, it was a bloody disaster, right? So. Uh, so in general, we haven't we haven't had that 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 brush fire through the economy that, that that forces us to make hard decisions. And what we're talking about here is is is, is essentially hard times in the employment market and the labour market, um, allowing people to toughen up and make hard decisions and, and really dial down to what matters. Uh, we haven't had that at the so you know the, we haven't had that at the top of the economy 
and it hasn't filtered through to the rest of the economy at the same time. So, you know, we are making very poor decisions. You've just got to see our debt load done and how bad our decisions are. Well, even worse, I mean, speaking from the employee's perspective, we've just come through two years of being paid to sit at home. I mean, that's, that's the opposite of motivating kids, isn't it? Yeah, look, you know, it's not helpful. Um, there's, you know, there's, there's there's a lot of savings out there because of that, and that, that's and that's a big cushion that people are sitting on at the moment. Um, so, but yeah, so COVID aside, but it has been going on for two decades, probably close to three, to be honest. So um, we've been, but who wants a recession? They're horrible. They they destroy mm. families, they destroy businesses, they destroy lives. Um, so, but we, and so we're not, we're not, when we sort of say that, that I think Tim was saying, and, and he probably went, it, it was in, what he said was interpreted to be a little too personal potentially, but you know, system wide, what we actually need is a little bit of stress in the system. And so we can sort of take out some of this, uh, some of this excess and some of the, some of the, some of the, the fruit that's been dropped on top from the lollies, if you know what I mean. So we can, we can get more efficient. And because we haven't done that, we haven't managed to take out those inefficiencies. So be that the labor market or, or the general economy. Um, so when, you know, when, when I think, when Tim was saying I'm words in his mouth, and my interpretation of what he said, and maybe delivered poorly, I don't think it was too bad, um, was that you know that, that if, if we have this 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 more, uh, if, if we repair the balance of the labour market a bit more, we'll actually have better overall economic outcomes. And I think that's undeniable. Yeah, it, well, it would increase productivity because people would be more inclined to work harder and and you know keep their job. But the, the solution from politicians, though. Steve is to uh, is to just increase immigration. That takes the pressure off the uh, off the labour market, but that brings with it all sorts of downsides as well, doesn't it? Well, um, yeah. I mean, I think and, and the fact that we just bring people in. I mean, I, I you know, um, when you, when you look at some of the demographic issues in some nations around the world, I, I think that there's there be a focused conversation for the next ten years, and we're going to see some real issues in certain countries around around declining populations. So. Now, I don't so much have a problem with the the inbound immigration, but I, I prefer skills being targeted. And I would prefer we built roads and towns and bridges and dams and railways to cope for it. So I think the, the real argument here is the fact that we haven't actually grown our infrastructure for that population size. It, it's the housing debate too, right? I mean, it, it, you know, all this crazy stuff about freezing rents and, and basically clamping down on landlords. When what we should be doing is actually making housing cheaper. We should be making land easier, building easier. Because if you really do hate a landlord, what you should do is you should flood the market full of houses, right? Because what that will do is that will actually send the price of rents down, right? But this is what I don't understand. Like, you want to fix housing, make lots, and you hate landlords. If you're a lefty, you hate landlords. Just have, you know, so many more houses out there. The price will go down because all, all you need is that, that, that one more house in the market. Then there is actually demand for, and that will put downward pressure on prices. Right? That, that's that's how thin that 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 marginal supply issue is. But now they just want to—I don't know—they want to freeze rents or do something dumb. Oh, and well, they, yeah, and they, they've created this new thing called affordable affordable housing, which uh, which isn't affordable and isn't housing. So, but there was a piece in the Wall Street Journal just last week. Uh, I'm just going to quote from that: Work experts have warned for years that the combination of baby boomer retirements. Low birth rates, shifting immigration policies and changing worker preferences is leaving US employers with too few workers to fill job openings. While the labour market is softening, none of those factors are expected to change dramatically in the coming years. That sounds like a description of the future for Australia too, doesn't it, Steve? Yeah, um, and I don't think, with your point before about COVID, I mean, I don't think the, the, the side effects and the after effects of, of the, this, the stupidity of the, of the interference, of government interference in the overreaction to COVID has worked through the system yet. 
um, all, all that money that was sort of dumped out there. Uh, and, you know, and if you're going to shut economies down, you probably should dump money out there. But, you know, the root cause is you shouldn't, cut, you shouldn't shut economies down personally. Um, so I, I, I can, you know, it, it, like I said, I can partially understand it, but I just don't think that we've actually worked through all that. I mean, the supply chains aren't there. I'm now in the defence space, the defence tech space, and, like, you know, we are doing this because I saw the absolute chaos, in part, I saw the absolute chaos caused by supply chains, and you think to yourself, well, if we ever really have to actually rely on ourselves for defence, we, we can't. So, um, well, you know, yeah. so the world still isn't, the world still isn't put, back to be, put back together yet, to be honest. No, you're right. I mean, one of the key things about uh, having people wanting to defend the country is that they have a little peace in it. And young Australians, you know, they can't even buy homes. Why would they want to even, even defend the country should it ever be invaded? But just before you go, Steve, what would your advice be to young people today? It seems like people of our generation think that they're not, they're not very well motivated, they're pretty hard to employ, they're pretty hard to keep in a job, get the right attitude. What would you tell them? Um... I think the best way to get you know the best way to get a better job is to start with a worst with a worse job. So um, you, you know it's called a ladder for a reason. You've got to, you've never start at the top of a ladder. You always start at the bottom. So that goes for jobs. That goes for housing. Um, look, I don't think our, I don't think their political our political masters are making it easy with respect to housing um, because it's just those systemic issues of, of, of supply and, and, and cost and regulation. But in the in the in the employment market. Um, I say to my kids, you know, be confident, you know, put your chin up, chest out, speak confidently, don't lie, um, tell it like it is, um, you know, be, be respectful, get out there, be useful, um, you know, volunteer, um, you know, if you, know, if, you, if you can't get the job you want, get, get the next best one down, right, and you'll find a week later or a year later or something like that, then that, that someone else is going to offer you a better job. So, um, uh, I mean, I started as an apprentice, for God's sakes, fixing and repairing compasses and binoculars. Um, we, we've all had our share of bad jobs. I didn't, did not start as an investor and a tech guy, not by any stretch of the imagination. That's great advice, Steve. I can add to that that I started life as a brickies labourer on some pretty tough building sites in Perth back in the 80s and it didn't do me any harm. It's something I'm particularly proud of much later in life. Steve Baxter, thanks so much for your time, mate. Cheers, Fred. That's tech entrepreneur and star of Channel 10's Shark Tank, Steve Baxter. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for watching. If you want to see more ADH content, have a look around our website or app for some of the best commentary in the nation from people like Alan Jones, Daisy Cousins, David Flint, Nick Cater, Lyle Shelton, Dave Pello, and more. Tell your friends, ADH is the new home for common sense commentary, and there's no shortage of things to comment about these days. I'll see you next Monday at seven o'clock. Good night.